new beginning. Welcome to the Grief James podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black. Uh, happy to have you here with us. And again, as I always like to say, thank you for listening and tuning in. Uh, we really appreciate all that. Let's get right into it. So on today's podcast, we have with us Mike Bernhardt, and his wife died in 1991. He turned to writing poetry as a tool of healing. He later solicited the poetry of other people whose loved ones had died, receiving hundreds of submissions from around the world. The result was Voices of the Grieving Heart, which was first published in 1994. The new expanded edition contains over 160 selected poems, essays, and images by 83 contributors who share their journeys through loss, grief, and transformation. After retiring in 2016 from a career in IT, he began to write a travel blog and essays. His award-winning work has appeared in Deep Travel, Souvenirs from the Inner Journey, Diver Magazine, and many other print and online publications. Mike lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with his second wife, their two cats, and their 23-year-old son. You can check out Mike at mikebernhart.net, and obviously we'll have a link for that in our notes. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you for coming on and even like doing what you're doing. So we'll get into sort of how you're raising awareness on grief dreams in your book. But first, I'm really curious because in your bio, it says you're an IT guy. And when I look at someone that's IT, I wouldn't say, oh, they're also a writer. But it seems somewhere along the lines, you got into writing. So when did that happen? I'm guessing it was maybe before you found your first wife? Yeah. I mean, I was kind of a pretty angst-ridden teenager, actually. And <laughs> so I was keeping a journal and writing even when I was like 16, 17 years old. Um, and I, I tended to write the most when I was in pain. Um, and so, um, <clears throat> yeah, so that's something I've been doing for a long time. It's almost like uh, someone who wrote became an IT guy and how did that happen? But yeah, so, but IT was sort of, it, it was never my passion, but it was something I was good at. So uh, that's what I did to pay the bills. Was that, so, when did you f figure out along the way that you enjoyed writing and using that to process emotions was that was it like a, a teacher that maybe encouraged you or a moment in uh, maybe high school that you recognize that i don't really know exactly when it happened i mean i i i did i always enjoyed writing too i was very fortunate in my senior year of high school one semester i had frank mccourt who was uh, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Angela's Ashes. He was my English teacher one semester. He wow. started teaching at my high school the semester before in New York City, um, which is where I grew up. So he, he was basically teaching a creative writing class, and uh, that was very inspiring. I still remember a story I wrote for him, just uh, kind of a... I think I, I had read... Oh, man, I can't remember the name of the book it was now. Really famous book. The one that the word grok came from. Stranger in a Strange Land. That's what it was. Ah, oh, okay. I was going to look yeah. it up. Yeah. So he wrote, yeah. So I, I'd read a book called Stranger in a Strange Land, and I wrote a, a kind of a short essay for a, based on a prompt that he'd put up on the blackboard. And I just really enjoyed writing that. And so I think that had something to do with it. But, um, but I think through my 20s and to my – I met – uh, Susan, my first wife, when I was 26. And um, I was keeping a journal all the time. So I think it wasn't 
that new to me to write um, after she died. Did, did you ever write her any poetry? I never wrote a poem for her, no. Although I did write one for Yvonne, my second wife, so. What about some love letters? Were you uh, into sending her those? <laughs> I don't think I did. Hmm. I, I was just reading a journal entry that, uh, that uh, <laughs> after she died, saying something that uh, I realized that one of the things she taught me was how to love. So I, I wasn't good at those things the first time around. I got a little better at it the second time. It's true, right? So sometimes we, uh, we, we, it takes a, a little time to, to grow and to feel comfortable being vulnerable. And, and love's really about being vulnerable um, by expressing ourselves. And yeah. whatever way it is, right? If it's, you know, words, hugs, actions, love letters, that's all always something that, you know, people can, can get into. And so I'm really curious about your relationship then together. So if it wasn't writing letters, you know, how did you guys bond and, and tell us a little bit about her herself? Well, she was, um, she, she was, she was from Oklahoma um, which doesn't mean much if you're Canadian, maybe, but um, it's kind of, um, it's not the South, but it's next to Texas. So it's sort of approaching the South, uh, a lot of agricultural and oil there. And, um, but she, she came from a pretty progressive family. She went to UC Santa Cruz uh, in Santa Cruz, California, which was kind of a hippie college. And I think that was very formative for her. And you know, we went out on a date at the time I was trying to, I, I was looking for a relationship and uh, I met her. I wasn't particularly interested in her, but um, I figured, well, I better practice asking people out. <laughs> so I, <laughs> so I asked her out and um, we ended up talking for hours and hours that evening. And uh, she was very upfront. She had a. She was born with a very serious congenital heart problem, um, and you would never know it to just look at her because she was just so energetic and vivacious. But uh, she told me all about that, which is certainly not something most people would talk about on a first date. And it was just it. We just really clicked, and uh, yeah, there was just a real connection there. So it turned out it turned into something and um i think we met in february 8 1983 or so and and uh in october that year we got married wow that's amazing how how quick that was so what led to that decision to be so quick or was that just a thing that happened maybe you know back in in it was it 84 or 83 you're saying 83 yeah, yeah i don't think it was a cultural thing in any way 1983 it was just just seemed like the right thing to do and so when i looked back on it after she died i kind of i had this sense afterward that a lot of these things happened because i i you know of course we all ascribe the meaning we want to things but i felt like time was short and she needed to uh you know have the support and live the life she was going to live while she could. And I felt like in some ways that's why we were together was so that she could have a good life for some amount of time. She, and I think in some sense, she always knew that time was short. I mean, the, the problem she had was going to catch up with her. I mean, it, it was a very complicated medical situation 
Um, she'd had surgery when she was 16. I think when she was born, her mother was told she wouldn't live past two. And then, um, then they said she wouldn't live past 10. And when she was 16, she had a surgery that kind of improved her condition somewhat. And then, uh, yeah, I met her when she was 23. And then uh, in 1987, so she was 27 at that point, she had another major surgery, and then she died four years later. Wow. And so what did you guys do with the time being short? And I think that's it's beautiful to be able to recognize that so soon in your life. Uh, not that you know her circumstances were great in the sense of having to, to know that, but for someone to be in those moments and to want to experience life to the fullest is I think a beautiful quality. And so what did you guys do together to fulfill some of her dreams and goals? <laughs> well, she was very goal oriented. I mean, I, I, I want to clarify that um, I didn't think those things while she was alive. It wasn't until after she was dead that I realized that maybe our relationship and, and all of that was really just to give her a good life. That was, but um, she was really into Amway when I met her, and uh, if that's sort of a a dead thing now, but it was sort of the the one of the first multi level marketing businesses. She was really into it. Most of her friends were into it, and uh, so I ended up getting into that with her at the time. Uh, that was probably the first thing I dropped after she died. It just seemed pretty meaningless after that, but. Uh, so we did a lot of that, but toward the end of her life, even that started to drop away uh, for her too, because there was things were changing at the end. We we were becoming much more spiritual people. I I always have been in some sense, but uh, but she it just became much more important to be authentic with each other, uh, be authentic with ourselves, and and not just be you know chasing dreams. So some of that started to fall by the wayside the last couple months of her life anyway. I mean, it was kind of like, you know, the end was closing in, even though we didn't really know it. So could you talk about just when you did know that the end was closing in? I don't think we knew. I mean, the last week of her life, so she started on a, she was having, starting to have some heart issues. And her cardiologist gave her a new medication that was not, even from the day, it's kind of weird because even from the day she started taking it, there was just something that felt off about it, not necessarily physically initially, but just, it just seemed like, I don't know, it's hard to describe, but it was just sort of an intuition. This isn't right, but, you know, she trusted her cardiologist and, and he was a really good person and very competent. He was the head of the cardiology department at the hospital that uh, she was affiliated with. She started having visions of like uh, people hovering, like a, a kind of, I will, I'll say angels just for a simple word, but it wasn't, I don't, I don't remember exactly, but just beings, I guess, beings of light kind of um, appearing around her sometimes. And those last few days, I mean, we had no idea anything was coming. The uh, condition that she was starting to have is called atrial arrhythmia, which is not 
horribly rare. Uh, a lot of people get that where the, the atrium kind of flutters. It doesn't necessarily close properly, contract properly. But in her case, this medication was to try to control it. But what ended up happening was, it, I think it was a Saturday. She died on a Sunday. On the day before that, she had a ventricular arrhythmia, which is really bad. That's The ventricle is what pumps the blood out to the body and the brain. And so when that happens, um, not a good thing. <laughs> That's basically cardiac arrest. And that happened in our house. Um, so it was very unexpected and sudden. And so I, I drove her to the hospital because it was much quicker than waiting for an ambulance to come. And uh, yeah, and then it happened again while we were in the car. And um, I, I mean, I literally uh, like... Re, uh, driving with one hand and I reached over and pounded her chest with the other hand and she woke up and got her to the hospital and uh, they wheeled her off and that was the last time that, uh, well, no, she was conscious for a while in the hospital and that, that the poem that, uh, there's another poem that deals with that night and morning, but in the book. Anyway, I feel like I'm rambling a little bit here, yeah. but uh how, how how old was she when she died? She was 31 when she died. And so what was, what was that like for you? Because you guys fell madly in love real quick and you had this experience together and then this happened. Like what was that? What was your grief like, you know, moving forward? I mean, it was, it was devastated, devastating. I mean, one of the things I, I remember is it, it was just like the floor dropped out from under me. I mean, I, I brought her in on a Saturday night. I was there most of the night. She had a couple more events because of this medication. They told me that the med these medications have like a half-life. So every time, and it would sort of, it was sort of like waves. It would be waves and troughs. And, and when a wave of concentration hit, I guess, uh, in her blood, then uh, she would have another cardiac event. And so she had one later that night. And, and then she was kind of in a coma. And finally, the next morning, I drove home. Uh, I had a couple of friends there with me at the hospital that morning. Uh, so they told me, you need to get some rest. So I went home. And when I got home, the phone was ringing. And they said, you've got to come back. And I got back in the car and drove back to the hospital. And when I got there, she died. So, I mean, it was pretty devastating. Wow. And then moving forward, did you have a lot of support? Or did you just really keep to yourself your grief and start writing the poetry? I had support because I, I had some people I was close with. And somebody had recommended to me um, a grief support organization that doesn't really exist anymore, but it was wonderful at the time. And so I was started going to weekly grief support groups. It was called the Center for Attitudinal Healing, and they based their work on A Course in Miracles. Uh, it had been started by somebody named Jerry Jampolsky, who wrote a book called Love is Letting Go of Fear. <laughs> the basic premise is, is that if your heart is full of love, it can't you can't have love and fear at the same time. You either have one or the other. And so the idea was if you let go of fear, there's more room for love. But the but the group itself was very much about compassionate listening. Uh, it wasn't about trying to teach us anything or tell us to do anything. And that was exactly what I needed was just to be able to say what was true for me, to hear other people 
tell their truth around grief. You know, nobody, we weren't told it's going to be okay. Uh, you know, none of those platitudes that people who are grieving really don't want to hear, but a lot of people seem to think it's necessary to say. So, but I was very careful with who I interacted with. Uh, I had people, friends that I trusted, but there were a lot of people whom I just didn't want to spend time with after that. And they were nice people, but I just couldn't be with them. Yeah, it's interesting to see what changes in ourselves when grief happens. You went a different direction. You try to find support through other means. And you just look at life differently. And what you value is different at that time, too. And so then when did this idea of making a book, because it was, what, three years after that it got published? The book came out three years after, yeah. But um, I actually started on the book not that maybe a few months later it wasn't the idea came to me i think i was seeing a therapist as well for support i'd been seeing her before susan died anyway and she turned out to be very helpful for me and i think she had kind of come up with the idea i had been looking for poetry or writing from other people who had gone through loss and i just didn't find anything that really struck me as true Again, there were, or, or, or at least it was too, it was too didactic. I didn't want to be told about grief. I just wanted to see myself reflected, I guess, in other people's writing. And there really wasn't much out there like that. So she had suggested, well, why don't you see if you can find other people who've written poetry about grief? And that was just the very beginning of what ended up being a three-year project to uh, create the first edition of this book. And was it hard for you to start finding people? Because I don't do poetry myself. And I don't, Sean, do you do poetry? Uh, I did when I was a lot, when I was younger. And uh, I even took a, a couple courses in university. Not so much anymore, though. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was an interesting... I, I don't remember exactly how I found the organizations. But when I had the idea, I I had become friends with someone at the Center for Attitudinal Healing who was kind of a director there uh, and was personal friends with Jerry Jampolsky, the founder, who he just died actually this past December, but uh, at 90 something years old. But at the time he was very active uh, in the organization. And he helped put me in touch with people and I, he arranged for me to meet with Jerry Jampolsky and there were other grief organizations out there. There's one called the compassionate friends, which is really big. And that's an organization that specializes in supporting people who are grieving uh, the loss of a sibling or a parent or a child or a grandparent or a grandchild, but you know, those familial relationship relationships, but not spouses. There was the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Center. Um, she was still very active at the time. And so what I ended up doing was putting ads. I mean, this was before the internet, really. I started putting ads in their newsletters, uh, requesting poetry. And I, I wrote a pitch, a call for submissions, and the poems started pouring in. I was not expecting that, but I got hundreds of poems, um, as the intro mentioned, from England, Australia, Portugal. Uh, It was a British woman living in Portugal at the time. And of course, all over the US, um, Canada. 
And so what started out as just, a, I'd love to read other people's writing, ended up becoming a book. And so then I started organizing it to um, just sort of based on my own experience, like finding the ways these poems were talking about different aspects of grief. And so the the first chapter was called Someone Died Today. And it started, it still starts with a poem that I wrote about the day that Susan died, kind of a little bit more uh, detail and emotion about the experience that I just shared with you. And then um, the next chapter was called The Raging Storm. Um, and so that I just sort of organized this. This was all very spontaneous. I just organized the poems based on kind of the experiences that people were sharing, either a poem about the day someone died or just the, the, just the storm of emotion right afterward. Then there was, there's another chapter called But You Elude Me, which is kind of about just the long slog of grief where you're just trying to put one foot in front of the other, or maybe you just don't want to put one foot in front of the other and just stay in bed. You know, I mean, whatever. The the range of experience, of course, is tremendous. And then there's a chapter called Begin to Heal, which is sort of where you sort of turn that corner into maybe being able to look forward a little bit. And then uh, there's another chapter called The Breath of Great Spirit, which was sort of more poems that are about saying goodbye, letting go, being able to uh, move on somewhat from what's happened. And then there's this chapter that I wrote that I, I had several dreams with Susan and I ended up writing a poem, although I don't think I wrote the poem for a couple of years after the dream, but I'd never forgotten that dream. And I, um, I had written about it in my journal, but I hadn't made a poem out of it. And so I, I, it turns out that other people have dreams like that too, as you well know. And so I, I collected those poems and put them in their own chapter. And so that's, that's kind of how the book came together. It was really for myself uh, at first. But as I started collecting the poems, I received letters with them. Because again, there was not really any email. And people just opened their hearts to me thanking me for, for the opportunity to share the poem that they'd sent me, that they'd never, they'd never shared the poem with anyone before. My therapist told me about you. She thought that it would be very helpful for me if I were to share this poem with you, that kind of stuff. It was just really incredible. And that's actually happened again since I started put out another calls for submissions for the second edition. Again, I was, I, it was just so much intimacy in emails that I would receive from people just kind of telling me about their experience. And sometimes we would talk back and forth for quite a while about something they were going through. I, I end up becoming a counselor as much as an editor. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's a beautiful thing. And I think it just shows that as humans, we're, we're all unique and different and it's similar to me in lots of other expressions of art. You know, if you're making a, well, a statue or a painting or, you know, you're just just doing things in different ways. But uh, it's just beautiful because, you know, it gives people if they if they if they don't express themselves through other means of conversation or even writing uh, in regular prose, then, you know, 
this poetry becomes a vessel for them to kind of put everything in there, their emotions, you know, all the symbolism and the metaphors and, and the images that can be used through poetry. It's, it's just beautiful. You know, like you were mentioning earlier, like, you know, using a storm, like my pain is, is storming. It, it's the raw emotion that's involved in that. Like it's, I could see a lot of people finding benefit in that. And also in finding that community where other people have written similar, uh, who have expressed themselves similarly and to look at something else and say, Oh, that resonates with me. And like, Oh, I totally feel that. Like, it's like lyrics to a, you know, an amazing song that you listen to that, that just touches you and it, and it, you, you go back to that song and, you know, you, you listen to it for years and then you're like, Oh, I can connect that with the time of my life. And I think that's the value and beauty of it and why it's so popular and why it's, you got a lot of submissions with that. Cause you know, as humans, we are, you know, we're artistic. We were always, since the beginning of humans, we've tried to express ourselves through other means other than, you know, regular conversation and a regular language. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I think the aspect of community that you mentioned is really important because um, I mean, we really need, connection with people that's one of the problems with the pandemic right now is that people are grieving and you know in so many cases they're unable to have those connections that that people need so much when they're in that much pain there's a lot more isolation and you know the isolation of grief can be bad enough without having the isolation of the pandemic on top of it there's few poems in the book about that i've got a in the new edition i've got a chapter about pandemic not pandemic related grief, but grief, grief due to death during the pandemic, sometimes from the pandemic, but not always. Yeah, I know I, I got an endorsement, something that you said um, about seeing yourself. Stephen Levine, who was uh, really big in the in the field of grief and death and dying, um, he died some years ago. He wrote a beautiful endorsement for the first edition of the book. And one of the things he said was each poem is a perfect mirror and encouragement to heal. Well, that's, that's, that's beautiful. You got that, that feedback. And so I'm really curious about yourself. So when you, when you look at not only the older version, but also the adaption and adding the new stuff in, what do you feel when you read these poems now? It's very hard for me to read these poems or almost anything in this book without choking up. It's, it's really gotten to be kind of funny for me because, I mean, I've read this stuff a lot, especially, you know, over the last six months or so as I was putting this new edition together. And um, it just never stops. I mean, there's, they always affect me, these poems. And I'm, I'm not grieving my first wife at all anymore. I feel like I truly have healed. I, I'm fortunate to be able to say that. There's a lot of people who wrote poems and, you know, they're still grieving their loss. I'm not. And yet it comes back every time I read these poems. It's really something. And I'm curious too, what, what have you learned with the new poetry that has come in during the pandemic and that type of grief? Did you learn anything new that you never had to go through? I think... One of the things that I learned, the pandemic-related poetry, I think I was sort of expecting what I got um, because I I knew ahead of time that that was going to be a factor for people, the isolation. And so 
I that was why I I was specifically looking for poetry that related to that. And uh, you know, I feel very fortunate not to have had the experiences that so many people had. There's another chapter in the book though that did surprise me. I went back to the original I was able to re- to locate like over 30 of the original contributors. Some of them had died of old age and others I just couldn't find, but of the 45 original contributors, I was able to locate over 30. And um I asked them some questions about where they were in relation to their grief now. Uh, and also if they had poems they wanted to share. The responses from those people were surprising. And so um, I edited those. I have 16, 17 responses. I, I wrote something for myself in there too, but uh, 16 other people are in that section of the book talking about where they are now 30 years or more later from their from the loss that they had first written about. And that was fascinating because of the range of experience, which I guess matches the range of experience in the book already. But there are people who still, you know, especially people who lost children. Um, I mean, I could replace eventually, not replace Susan, but I could replace the place that the place that she held for me was has been filled by someone else. But people who've lost children, it's not the same. You can't replace a child. And, you know, some people were even, there was one woman who had a miscarriage and she was told, you know, just get over it, try again, doesn't matter. And she still, you know, she did move on and had other children, but it's been hard. And then there was, there was a woman who um, had a stillbirth and it's, uh, she had that stillbirth in the 1960s. And she still misses that child every day. Um, she had four sons after a da- after the stillborn daughter, and um, so she never. She says she looks now. She's as she's old. She looks at, down the street. She sees mothers and daughters doing things together, and she just misses the relationship that she never got to have with a daughter. So there's another woman whose son died in a car crash at 15 years old. And, you know, she still struggles with that. I guess what was interesting to me was that people's experiences often were not like mine. And I suppose I should have expected that. But it really hit me in the face (laughs) to recognize how different other people's experiences are. And it was just sort of a reminder, again, that we cannot uh, make assumptions about people's grief or where they should be. Um, or any of those things it's it's as personal as everything else about their lives yeah that's uh that's absolutely correct and it's something we've come across ourselves doing the many interviews that we've had on the podcast and just the different types of grief and how where people are in their in in their own journey and you know like you said it's all types and it, it really breaks down the notion that it's something that is linear and follows a progression and you know you can kind of like okay well you know you're going to be healing and this at this point this is when you should be you know healed or whatever the situation is that those assumptions that we've all kind of like maybe uh bought into but and then that just uh you know it just means that giving everybody that space and fresh eyes and respect that hey 
you know, your grief is valid and it means something, you know, and it doesn't matter what it is, you know, and we've talked a lot of people from, again, like I said, miscarriages or, uh, you know, pet loss and, and you know, children uh, dying or parents or, you know, older people. And this is one thing then where people get frustrated with when they share their grief is because they're worried. They're scared that someone's not going to, you know, give it the the time or, or make it valid or in their comments, which, which is terrible. But yeah, I'm, that's, it's so cool to hear that, that you kind of can touch base with people, you know, after that long time and kind of get a, a sense of where they're at with it. I think we should probably do that with the podcast is maybe 10 years from now, touch base with some of these uh, amazing people that we've, we've uh, gotten to talk to. Yeah, we were, uh, Yvonne and I have said that this is, uh, we don't know of any other book that goes back and does that. It's like the first vertical study of of people who've grieved (laughs) to go back this far in, this far into their lives and ask them, so what's that loss like now? I love to say like, well, let's go to the, the dreams. Like you put grief dreams in there when a lot of people... I don't think there was any research even on that topic at that time, but yet you're validating that it was something that needs to be talked about. And so I want to thank you for that because in your own way, you opened the door to normalize these experiences for those who are grieving. And so thank you for that. And I'm really curious if the listeners could hear one of the poems you wrote about your dreams. Yeah. And I wanted to mention, I actually, I only wrote a poem about one of them, but I was looking through this old journal I've got, and I actually had a number of dreams with Susan. Um, The first one was about 10 days after she died. The poem is about a dream that I had about two and a half months later. But it it was interesting looking at the details here that I wrote because... I left a few of those out of the poem itself, but I'll read you the poem and then we can talk about that if you want. So the poem is called Resurrection. How could you be here? I don't know, you answered, but we smiled and embraced love washing through us as I closed my eyes to listen and you spoke to me of dying. I remember it was 11 o'clock. They were wheeling me out of the room Then I was trying to get back, running through the corridors, but I couldn't find the room. I didn't realize. You recalled it with a sense of wonder, no pain, no fear, a magical adventure. And as you spoke, an all-encompassing quiet joy, your heart smiling, my heart opening. But I awoke too soon, feeling you in my arms as you evaporated. I laughed, then cried, your words echoing in my ears so loudly I still hear them. Wow, that's touching. It's beautiful. And you see such a range of emotion within there. And so could you speak upon the actual dream now in a little more detail? Yeah. So let's see the date. I'm looking at my journal here. I had a number of dreams. This was on June 27th. Yeah, so I guess I'll just read what what I uh, wrote here. I'll sort of start in the middle. It looks like I was at some kind of a service, but not for her, like a memorial service or something. And suddenly Susan was with me, 
sitting with me talking. We were holding each other, rocking gently. I told her I didn't understand how she could be there. I had her ashes, it didn't make sense. She said she didn't understand it either. And she also didn't seem very curious about it. She said, I know it was 11 o'clock. They wheeled me out. I couldn't talk, I had the ventilator in my mouth. And I, I made a note here, I had images of what she was saying as she said it. When she was running down the hall, she didn't have the ventilator, only she was in her nightgown. Anyway, she said they wheeled me out and I kept thinking the next hallway or the next hallway was where my room was. I didn't realize. At that moment, we were holding each other through this and I had my eyes closed. I opened my eyes to look at her and opened them into this world still holding her. She was peaceful. She didn't say anything about any pain. She was happy. I remember thinking about how I've talked about it would be very hard to have her back now because of the changes I've been making in my personal life, you know, recovering from all this. But it didn't matter anymore. The feeling between us wasn't desperate or intense. It was gentle, but deep love and connection we always had. The dream was wonderful for me. I feel peaceful, happy to have seen her. Wow, I, I love it. And you said it's so different, but you can see how your your dream really reflects the poetry that you wrote. And I just love the peace that you felt. And I think that's that's phenomenal to have had that moment. And what that does for us is still a mystery in how it helps us in our grief, but it seems to really have. But at the same time, it opened up your heart. And as you said, it you cried, right? When you woke up from that dream? Yeah, because, you know, I mean, in, in the dream, I was, I was holding her with my eyes closed and I opened my eyes to look at her and then she was gone. You know, I was back in my bed. So that was, uh, it was like losing her again. And at the same time, you know, it was so wonderful to know that she was okay. And, you know, sharing that love. I mean, I'm assuming that it's normal experience for people sometimes to have dreams that are just really emotional. I mean, I, I, I have them, I don't know, a few times a year, I guess, you know, dreams where I'm just, I just have really intense emotion in the dream and I'll wake up crying or laughing or something. So this was one of those, but that particular dream was memorable enough that it was two years later that I wrote the poem and it was still, you know, the poem, the, at the time, the dream was still fresh for me. Yeah, that's, that's usually different than most other dreams, right? That just fade away so fast. So it did have an impact in how you process your grief moving forward. But you're right. Like when you, we talk about how peaceful and loving a lot of these dreams can be. But the fact is true. Once you're out of that experience, you got to sit with the fact that they are not there presently with you. And right. that brings up so much emotion. And having to sit with that, that pain of them not being able to be there. And so I'm curious. So you had said you had your first dream 10 days later. Was that right? Yeah, 10 days later. Was that first dream different than that dream in the sense of any kind of peace or comfort that it gave you? Well, it, it did give me some peace. I'd forgotten about it, though, until I was looking through my journal here. One of the things I, I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment. One of the things I wanted to mention that was interesting about the dream that I just shared with you was that she said it was 11 o'clock. That Sunday was the day that the time changed, uh, the first Sunday in April. And so it was actually noon when she died. 
And what fascinated me about that was that she said it was 11 because she didn't have the awareness that the time had changed. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't believe in, uh, you know, uh, what's it called? Daylight savings. She's like, nah, you know. Sorry. Yeah. Well, and also she'd been in a coma most of the night. I mean, you know, she wasn't she wasn't going to be aware that uh, at two in the morning the time changed. So, um, so I always thought that was really fascinating. It kind of always lended a little bit more credence to me about the dream because I knew it was noon, but she didn't. So this first dream was yeah, it was uh, she died on April seventh and it was April eighteenth. I had gone to I had been asking, kind of having an intention, I guess you'd say, to have a dream that I would remember with Susan. And so I had a dream where uh, a friend of ours was telling me about some kind of experimental anti-CPR drug that someone was given. I don't know who this person is anymore. And then she suddenly shut up about it because it was supposed to be a secret. And then Susan came to me in that dream and I was telling her about this drug and she said, oh yeah, I know all about that, but it wouldn't have worked after the second CPR because she'd, she'd been, uh, she'd been given CPR multiple times that night. And then I suddenly realized that she was with me, that she was talking, that she was fine. She wasn't brain damaged. She was okay. I was hugging her, talking to her. I was so happy. Then I felt her take a little gasp of air in, and her body was dead in my arms again. Then I woke up, first feeling the loss, then happy that I'd had a dream that I'd asked for. <laughs> so that was the first one. Wow, that's wild. As you were saying, like you had the peace, but there was also the acknowledgement that she did die. And yeah. dream, dream, dreams are funny like that because there's a lot of wisdom, and it, it's working on like multiple levels within the mind. And it's interesting how short these dreams are. Or sometimes there's barriers for you and the deceased. And it's really trying to get you to acknowledge the truth of the death in many ways. And you can see that, but you can also see that the love was still present within there. That's fascinating. And did you yeah. ever figure out what that drug was? That's interesting how. No, it was, it was just that, a, yeah. it was a dream drug. <laughs> <laughs> it still is. All right. And it still is. <laughs> if somebody's, I don't know what that was about. It was just, uh, you know, how dreams can be, but. Well, I can um, see it would be reduce any kind of guilt or anything that maybe one had of trying to be able to, there's some, is there anything else I could have done to save her kind of thing? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Look at you. That's amazing. It's amazing. You were having these dreams so soon. And so have you seen those change as you move forward? Like, do you still have dreams of Susan? I haven't had dreams of her in a long time. Um, I, I did. The last one I had actually was that same year, at least the last one that I can remember. And this one was quite memorable, too. Um, I had this was in September of the same year. I'd already met my second wife, Yvonne. I mean, we weren't married yet, but we were at that point, really, we were kind of friends becoming more. I We went camping one weekend and I had a dream during that weekend. And Susan was telling me that she was really tired. And I told her, go take care of yourself, you know, whatever you need to do. I don't need you to spend some time with me, so much time with me anymore. I'm okay. And I don't remember having any more dreams with her after that. Wow, it's so interesting. 
That's so wild. You're like in the dream. You're saying, like, I'm okay. Like, I'm good. Like, I don't need this as often as I once did. And it definitely yeah, showcases yeah. your progress and also what you've been saying about how you really have adapted to the loss and, and healed on some of those wounds as you move forward in life. And I think that that dream really showcases that in many ways. It's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting about it is I was certainly nowhere done, not anywhere close to done with the grief. I mean, the, the hardest thing as, as my relationship with Yvonne became more serious was that I was still grieving Susan. And there were times when I just said, you know what, I just can't go out with you today. I need to be by myself. It was, I mean, and that went on for at least a year. There was a point where um, <laughs> my, my marriage proposal to Yvonne which was over about a year and a quarter after Susan had died was I'm not ready to get married yet, but when I am, I'd like it to be you. <laughs> and she didn't know what to make of that. <laughs> Cause I just, it was like, I, I couldn't, you know, I, I just had to be truthful and that's what it was. Unfortunately, uh, she was willing to wait. So we just talked about, you know, starting relationships after loss and I thought it was Olivia, right? A Olivia. And so for you, starting that relationship and talking about Susan with Yvonne, was that something that was that she welcomed or was it something that you had to do more on your own? I would say both. I didn't want to burden her with it too much. I have an interesting story about that, which is that one one evening in that support group that I was going to every week, a woman came in who had lost her husband a few years before, uh, and she had remarried and had she had recovered, but she just needed to check in. Uh, and so she came to the group. I only saw her that one time, but I, I had met her actually before in completely other circumstances, which is why I remember who she was. But she talked about crying in the arms of her second husband uh, as she grieved her first husband. And I said to her, wow, I hope I could meet somebody who'd be so open, you know? And she said, you won't settle for less. And that always stuck with me. And I remember there was one morning when I just started crying for Susan in Yvonne's arms. And it was beautiful and she was there with me and it was like that's when i knew it was you know she's the right one it takes i think a compassionate person takes a mature person to be able to navigate through those complex emotions and i'm speaking on the part of your second wife uh, a olivia nelson said something funny what did she say or interesting she said uh there's no competition with the dead man because she ended <laughs> up she uh her first uh were they married her first no her first partner had passed and uh her, her second partner uh, was they were discussing that so i thought that was funny yeah actually with with um the first time that yvonne spent the night at my house she said look i know you're grieving but could you at least take her picture down in the bedroom <laughs> and i did <laughs> it was just it was a little weird for her to see pictures of susan in the, in the bedroom but Hey, right. You're compromising and that's really the way to go. But at the same time, it's also knowing what you need. And so I'm glad you didn't settle for less because some people do just to sort of feel that 
compassion or to be with someone again or companionship, but you're able to be able to talk and still keep her memory alive with the new relationship. And so I think that's amazing. And I commend anyone who allows people to be able to do that as they grieve. Yeah. I mean, and I know it wasn't easy for my, uh, for Yvonne, my second wife. I mean, she, you know, when we were dating, I mean, I know she told me she was thinking about breaking up. She told me later she was seriously considering breaking up with me because she just didn't know when things were going to, when I was going to be fully hers, I guess you might say. She had a very good friend who met me a few times and just said, you know what, I think he's worth waiting for. Just give him time. And uh, I'm glad she did. We're still together. That's amazing. Look at that, eh? Sometimes you just have to wait for what you're looking for and allow people to just, you know, go at their own speed. And it's, it, that also develops a beautiful bond because you get to witness someone becoming, I guess, more yours and to not rush it, but allow that person to have that space to, to mend their broken heart and to, to value you too. Because I know if I had someone like that, and that was waiting and it was there for me. Well, I'm going to value them so much more because so many people in my life would tell me to hurry up or to just leave me or to just not be around me. And it's those people who stick around through those tougher times that I actually care the most about as I'm, as I sort of move forward in my loss. Like those are the people that are staples in my life. And that's what you want in a marriage. You want someone who can you can look at and say, wow, you know, like they were there for me in those times and they saw the beauty within me. And even sometimes when I couldn't see it in myself. And so those are like, that's beautiful. You're able to have that and that she stuck around because at the end of the day, it's tough, right? I'm not saying it's easy. It's, it can be very tough holding space and not being the number one. But, you know, at the end of the day, we all have our, our past that we take with us. And it's those people that can hold us through our past that allow us to begin this new future together. So I think it's great. And I, I love that you're able to come on and share your dreams and and really look back and, and realize that, you know what, I can write a second edition to this book and get more people's stories and poems within this to help more people in a difficult time. And so one of our questions that we like to ask people at the end of the podcast is if you could have a dream tonight of someone who has passed, probably Susan, what would that look like to you? I think if I were to have a dream with her tonight, I don't know. I mean, you know, I dedicated the book to her. I, I wrote, you know, my gift to her and hers to me uh, in my dedication. And I guess if she were to show up in a dream, I guess it would just be nice to say thank you. To just, you know, to be able to just be there together and, and, um, feel that love with her as, you know, just as, um, you know, without any attachments, just with gratitude for, I mean, I, I thank her every day for the life that I have now. I have a really good life. And in many ways, I would never have had this life with her. It just wasn't some of the things that I've been able to do and have, uh, like have a son who's grown now. She couldn't have children because of her heart condition. So that there are so many things that uh, I, I I don't thank her for dying, but I I do. It's it's not that simple. I, I feel like she led me here in some ways. I mean, the 
Yvonne, the woman I married to, was the next door neighbor of, of Susan's best friend. And even though I'd known that woman for years, I'd never met Yvonne as a neighbor until after Susan died. And um, both the neighbor and I, the, the, her friend and I both all sort of felt that, that Susan was playing matchmaker and putting us together. And so, yeah, a lot of gratitude. So I think that's what I would want in a dream is just to enjoy that gratitude with her. No, I, I like that. I like that a lot because it's amazing the people who we are with and how they change us. And we become different people because of the the love that we share together. And that's what I hear you saying. And that led to you being a different person and one that could actually have that relationship with Yvonne. You know, like it it changed you, right? The love and and everything you guys went through. It turned into a new person. That person was ready for Yvonne. I can see your... Yeah. I can see Susan saying, like, I, I did good, eh? And then you're like, yeah, <laughs> Yvonne's great. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And then you'd be like, now get one for my son. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, some of these events and, and situations, things that happen to us in life, they're they're terrible sometimes. And we don't wish that to happen. But. When you look back and you look at where you've come and how that has changed your life moving forward and impacted it, it you can look at that with gratitude, I think, and say, you know, it has maybe now I'm in a situation that's good. Now I'm in a place and it was in either directly or indirectly because of that event. You know, we talked to a lot of different people and people who've had, uh, you know, death in their life you know whether children are dying or something and you know often they come on and, and they have happiness and joy in their voice and in their life and it's beautiful to see them you know appreciate things differently and you know that's what i'm hearing from you it's not uh, you know it's it's awkward to kind of say that well she died and because of that this this and this happened in my life that was good it's weird there's there's just no real words that i have maybe you can come up with some being the poet but but uh (laughs) it's just one of those things right that now that's just how life works you know i've had crappy situations in my life that i wish i didn't go through them but now i look back and i can say you know i'm i'm in a good spot and i'm better because of those situations which is uh you know a little complex yeah yeah uh, you know a friend of mine asked me if you could go back and talk to yourself 30 years ago like if if i now could go back and speak to myself 30 years ago when susan died uh, what would you say to younger mike and it took me a while i had to really think about that question because if if i were to have told him look you're going to have a, this is all going to work out. You're going to have a wonderful life. You're going to meet someone new and have a child and have more financial success than you've had and blah, blah, blah. I, as the younger one would have said, I don't care about all that. I just want Susan back. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I think the only thing I could have said to younger me would have been, I know what you're going through. I've been there. It's tough. 
and just be kind to yourself. I mean, that's really the only thing I could have said that I would have heard. So, yeah. I, I like that. And it sort of really showcases the fact that even knowing and having that hope for the future, it, it doesn't eliminate the pain of what is. And you have to go through that pain. And that's what you're saying. Kindness to yourself is the is the biggest thing one can do. So that's actually a cool exercise. I mean, we may yeah, ask people. I, I was just going to say, know. we should probably add that to the uh, <laughs> our, our questions near the end. That's a good one. Yeah, it really made me think because, you know, there were so many things I would like to say to that younger Mike. And uh, but he wouldn't have been able to hear them. Yeah, he was in too thing. much pain. He didn't I I didn't I, I didn't care about all that. It's like I love Susan and, you know, all of that other stuff. It's it's worthless to me. So. I like that because because when I look back at my because my dad died when I was in undergrad, and so if I would look back and pose that question, I would have and it was the first let's say first week of uh, that sorrow, I would have said just wait for the dream because yeah. <laughs> it was three months later I had a dream mm -hmm. that changed everything, but that's really <laughs> really <laughs> so that's what I probably would say. Interesting, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think about that question, not death related, but just in general, like, just based off of like regrets or anything, like if I could go back to my younger self, what would I say? And often the cases, I, I don't know if there are any words, be patient, that, that one probably be patient, you know, things will get better. <laughs> Look for a man named Joshua Black. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, start a podcast. Yeah. Some crazy person is going to be contacting you about some wild dreams that he has. Don't ignore him. <laughs> Don't ignore him. Yeah, I think it really depends on the event, right? Because sure. I mean, yeah, if I uh, if it were losing a job or something like that, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it'd be yeah, just hey, you're going to be okay. Just uh, just relax, give it time, but. Yeah. Um, and put you all your money on uh, put all your money on the Raptors winning the 2019 uh, NBA championship. And that's gonna happen. <laughs> Don't worry. Just, just put all your money there. Right. Yeah. But you know, when your whole life is is uh, based on a, a particular relationship, which is, I mean, that's what love is, right? I mean, your life becomes more and more. In, I mean, not that your whole life is is that relationship, but you know you build a life around it let's put it that way i mean it really it's like you know the it's like the the earth drops out from under you and you're just falling and all you want is for the earth to come back you don't want to hear don't worry you know when you finish falling it'll be okay you won't yeah. crash oh yeah <laughs> absolutely it's it's those it, it, it's very difficult when you're in the moment of it you're in the middle of it to kind of uh, look at the future and see how things can change, especially when you're in a bad spot, is very difficult. But now that you're your older self, you can look back. And as humans, we're it's amazing. We're so resilient, and we have the uh, amazing ability to adapt and change. And that's fascinating. People ask me, "Oh, what's you know?" You get those questions, whether in job interviews or in life. Like, where where do you see yourself in five years? I can't even answer that question anymore. Like it's just things just change so much and, and we're adapting and, 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 you know, goals change. Yeah. Actually, that's funny. This is just a little aside uh, that um, my wife jokes about how she was in a job interview once she was actually, it was a, she's a career counselor and she was actually applying for a job 
like that. And so she knows all the right answers to give for these interview questions. And they asked her something like, she didn't really want the job that she was interviewing for, but she was doing it anyway. And they asked her, where do you see yourself in five years? And it just blurted out, hell if I know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she, didn't well. get the, she didn't get the job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they don't exactly want to hear that one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's right. You know. Yeah. I'm excited that your book is, is out currently. So where can people find the book? So the book is available on Amazon and Book Depository right now. And if it's not already at your favorite independent bookstore, it should be very soon. And you can also order it from my website, which is mikebernhardt.net. All right. Amazing. If someone has poetry for you, let's say someone just wants to share poetry with you, is that something that you always offer for people just to see and, and get that feedback? Sure. They're, they're welcome to do that. I am thinking about making some kind of an addition to my website where people could post poems. I have to figure out how to do that in a secure way so I don't end up with all sorts of other stuff that shouldn't be there. But I'm probably not going to do another edition of this book. But if people want to share poems with me, I love to read them. It's just really a, a moving experience to receive this stuff that when people trust me with their work. so. Send it on. I have a contact form on my website, and you're welcome to include it there. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure hearing all about your journey and your story. And thank you for just using your own unique way to bring people together. And see, so, like something I've never wrote poetry about my grief, but that's my limitation. I, I can't connect people through that, but you can. And I think that's the beauty of having a, a community and getting people together who have similar ways of coping and similar ways of expressing their loss is that it helps people move forward together. And so I want to thank you for that. Well, thank you. I'm going to give a brief shout out too to the man who wrote the foreword for my book. His name is John Fox. And um, he wrote a couple of books about using poetry as a tool of healing. Um, and he has a nonprofit called the Institute for Poetic Medicine. His website is poeticmedicine.org, and it's really worth checking out. I met him, excuse me, I met him after Susan died and after I was already writing, but he's been doing amazing work for a really long time, just helping people to express their pain and their grief and whatever else is going on with them through poetry. So um, we kind of hooked up because we're on sort of intersecting paths. And um, yeah, his work is really worth check looking into. Yeah, thank you. That, that was a good resource. And uh, if listeners want to go check that out, you know, they might be able to uh, learn how to uh, obviously go through uh, poetry themselves and express themselves in a unique way. I think that's uh, phenomenal. There's also a, the last section of the book is a, is a section where I describe, I, I give some prompts and some suggestions if people do want to write their own poetry. Uh, awesome. who maybe haven't written before, how to get started, and, and uh, some suggestions for that. Oh, that's awesome. That's so cool. Great. Uh, well, we hope, everyone, you enjoyed this episode. If you wanted to know more about the topic, you can ch check out our platform, griefdreams.ca. Um, if you wanted to support the podcast, you can also do that on the website, griefdreams.ca, uh, through the links. And we'd like to thank all those who continue to support us. 
Uh, also on the website, you can find our online courses by Dr. Joshua Black and Jade Carling Black. And there are two of them. One of them is uh, called a Grief Dreams Workshop. So this will help you gain the necessary skills to discuss the topic of grief dreams in a way that facilitates the processing of grief. Uh, you're also going to learn about topics of sleep, dreams in general, grief and trauma, and of course, grief dreams. And the other one's called Crazy in Love, Using Romantic Relationships as a Vehicle for Growth. Uh, it's just super organic course, and it's designed to make you rethink modern relationships. Uh, so check that one out as well. If you have Facebook, you can follow our Grief Dreams podcast page to be notified of when we release new episodes. You can also join the Grief Dreams Facebook group to share your dreams and hear more dreams of others. We are on Instagram and Twitter at Grief Dreams. And as always, we like to end the podcast with love and gratitude from us to you. Myself, you have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.